Okay, well, welcome to the second episode of Season 3, Brian. I was Teenage Fundamentalist Podcast. Here we are. Season 3, it's ridiculous. As we've said before, we just one day thought we'd press record while we were having a chat, and here we are, Season 3. Uh, it's it's pretty nuts. It's humbling. It's it's fantastic. And, you know, to have the guests that we're having is amazing. And tell us about today's guest. You know how the guest came about was that someone in our Facebook group said, hey, have you heard of this guy, which was Frank Schaefer? And I looked on the on the link and I thought, no. And so I opened up his stuff. Next thing you know, four books later, I'm like, I'm a fan. I hate to gush, but I am. I'm a fan. And so, and then I went back to that person and said, love these books. And they said, oh, I haven't read anything that he's actually written. I just, I'd heard of him. And I was like, okay, thanks. But anyway, it was a good, good nudge. So hello, Frank Schaefer. Hey, uh, Troy and Brian, thank you for having me. When, when we reached out to you, we, we shot you an email and said, hey, do you want to come on our show? And you got back like with just in a few hours. So we are really, really glad that you're, uh, you're on the show and we're really, really glad to have you. And we've got so many questions, so many things that we want to ask. Isn't that right, Brian? Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I'm really looking forward to having a chat. And as we like to do on this podcast, this really is about having a chat and finding out about some of the similarities we have, but also the experiences that that you have that can help people deal with a lot of the shit that they've gone through and the stuff that they're trying to unpack and make sense of and actually um, turn into a, a bit of a positive in their life. And, and I know, Frank, through reading your stuff, Absolutely. You've gone through a very similar journey. So we're looking forward to unpacking that a bit with you. So, so Frank, for someone who's never heard of you or read any of your books or knows nothing about you, your high profile past, your father, your family, who is Frank Schaefer? What is your journey? Just a small question to get us started. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, 90 minutes from now, I'll finish that answer and see if you have any other questions because it's a long story. But uh, let's see how to do this. I'll give you a thumbnail sketch, which of course um, covers material that you know I have written about in, in, a, in a kind of memoir form in a couple of my books, uh, and talk about when I speak. But I'll I'll do the best I can. Um, you know, er- everybody's life is a journey and a series of conversions and lapses. And I'm not talking about religious conversions, but you know, what do I want to study? Who do I want to be with? And so forth. So there's nothing unusual about that. The the I, I guess the thing that marks my journey as a little unusual is that my um, journey has taken me in radically different directions than those that I had expected to be in. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. I was born as the son of Francis Anita Schaefer in Switzerland, American evangelical fundamentalist missionaries who went to Europe after the Second World War to work with youth in bombed out cities and they located in Switzerland for one reason and that was Switzerland being a neutral country the infrastructure still worked you could get a train from Switzerland to Paris or to Milan or Berlin whereas if you had been one of the countries caught up in the war the infrastructure was still in tatters so it was kind of coincidental that they lived there I was born in 1952 in a little Swiss chalet uh, in a town called Champéry in the French-speaking part of Switzerland Um, near Geneva, Montreux, the lake there. Um, And then my parents moved across the valley and I grew up in another little village uh, where the cows outnumbered the people. So I actually grew up in a farming village. My background is that of being in a a little farming community. And we were basically um, an American enclave of English speakers in a Swiss village on a mountainside in the 1950s, more or less cut off from any cultural connection with the USA. My parents were now split from their original mission and doing their own thing, founded a ministry called Le Brie Fellowship, which means the shelter in French. So the first part of my childhood was as the son, uh, the youngest child of four in a very humble, uh, small missionary outfit in one house that was run as an open home, a kind of an intentional community before there were such things, a little spiritual commune before there were such things, and really nothing much more than my parents and a couple of university students who would come up as guests for the weekend, along with my sister, who was at the school at that time in the University of Lausanne. 
And my dad would have discussions and then someone would say, well, maybe I'll stay through Monday and go back a little later. Well, one thing led to another. And pretty soon, the Brie Fellowship was this way station for quote unquote seekers, people traveling around the world looking for something. If you fast forward into the 60s, it's kind of the Beatles era where they're going off to India uh, to, to check out the Maharishi. People are hitchhiking around Europe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And by that point, Labrie is now really established and on the evangelical map. Francis Schaeffer is not known to the big world out there, but a, a small number of American, particularly and British evangelicals, are starting to know who he is. And then he wrote a couple of books, uh, The God Who Is There, Escape From Reason, and so on in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, and they really took off. And so now Francis Schaeffer is a household name in American evangelicalism. And we're on the cusp of what I'll call big time American Christianity. So before you go on, can I just say this starting point, though, it wasn't, you know, platform speaking, jet flying. This was like, you know, almost orphanage style reaching out this kind of thing. Yeah. And this is this is, you know, meat, no meat during the week because they didn't have the budget. Maybe a roast chicken divided between 10 or 15 people, including the students. I mean, no kidding. On a Sunday. Um, and it's a small, humble faith mission funded by people's donations. No car, no secretary. Dad didn't have a desk. He's sitting on the edge of his bed working on a tea tray where he's doing preparing his Bible study. Sermons are delivered in the living room to maybe a dozen people. And my mother's sitting there drawing pictures and illustrating my dad's one-hour studies on Romans, for instance, a series of sermons. So my childhood is that of a of a, of a little kid in a home church in which the entire family is, is drafted into reaching the lost people who are coming through uh, in the sense that, you know, we are witnessing to them the burden for their salvation falls on us. If somebody gets saved and makes a profession of Christ, um, my sister runs down and, and in those days it's 78 uh, RPM, not even long playing um, LPs yet vinyl records, of course, and she puts on the hallelujah chorus. And now we know that somebody's just made a profession of faith. So this is one-on-one -on -one ministry to maybe eight, nine people at the most at any given time. That's my childhood. Now, my, my, my middle school years into teen years, everything changes. And now there's seven chalets. Uh, there's house parents in each chalet. There's maybe 120 students at any given time. Dad's being invited to big American evangelical institutions like Wheaton College and Gordon-Conwell, and I'm starting to tag along as a, as a teen. Uh, at one point, I'm set off to a British boarding school because I was being homeschooled, typical kind of evangelical fundamentalist deal where, you know, they, they're keeping me home and homeschooling me. I'm not learning much. I'm dyslexic, and they don't know that. So, you know, basically, uh, they have problems. So, Someone suggests to them there's this little boys, boys school, Great Wallstead in Linfield in Sussex in the UK. So I find myself at age 10 uh, in a British boarding school for five years, um, uh, the British boarding school system. The second school I was sent to when I got too old for this prep school at 13 was a place called St. David's in North Wales. So I was in the British system and I ran away from that school, made it all the way from North Wales back through London on a ferry to the Hook of Holland, uh, no passport, no money, sneaking onto trains, hiding in the toilet, et cetera, et cetera, got back, refused to go back to school in the UK. So there's a sort of a little, in, you know, <laughs> parenthetical moment for me as a kid. Um, by the time I've run away from school and I'm in Switzerland again as a 15-year-old, you know, when we sat down at the, the dining room table, Billy Graham, the evangelist, is there for the weekend with his wife, Ruth. Um, Betty Ford uh, is going to become, in a year or two later, one of my mother's close friends, and my parents are going to be staying in the White House. You know, everything's shifting. So we've gone from macaroni and cheese casseroles and meatloaf once in a while to uh, a whole different world. And of course, it was incremental. It, it didn't happen overnight. So the middle years of what you would call my childhood into adolescence is that of a son of a, an evangelical superstar. So it's like NASCAR. If you've never heard of it and you don't know who Dale Earnhardt was and so forth, you, you don't know anything about it. But if you're into NASCAR, you assume everybody knows. And of course, we were in it. And so I never met anybody to whom my father was not famous, if you understand what I'm saying, when we were traveling. 
Um, I had no idea that no one had ever heard of him in the larger sense of the word, but the evangelical ghetto is, is hermetically sealed and we were very famous within that. So that's, that's kind of the middle years. Now, the interesting thing about Labrie at that time is if you had visited, uh, you would have thought that it was a slightly center left type of place, that fundamentalist Christianity was being preached in terms of the simple gospel message. That was on track. But there were lectures on art history. You know, dad was was giving lectures on Bob Dylan's lyrics and what they meant, early Woody Allen films. We were having film festivals. So we became a very kind of late 60s, cool sort of place on top of the fundamentalist theology because of my father's interest in culture. And so we had arts festivals, um, things like the Greenbelt Festival in the UK that then started pulling 25,000 people per, uh, at a time where U2 got their start came out of Labrie in the sense that some British actors and people interested in culture went back, took my dad's message of infiltrating the culture with the gospel, with music, go into drama, be a lawyer, change the court system. You know, my father's whole thing was not withdraw from the world. It was get into the world and change it. So at that phase of my childhood, you know, there's lots of people with long hair around. Um, there's people who come to Labrie who are drug addicts and dad isn't throwing them out. Um, there's some gay people coming through, not gay in those days. That's not the word at that point, but people who my father would have said were homosexuals that are living a lifestyle he didn't agree with, but he's not throwing them out and he's not telling them they're evil. So at that point, if you looked at Francis Schaeffer, let's just say 1968 through 1972, you'd say, here's a fundamentalist Christian, but with a really open heart to people in terms of treating them very decently, but also very interested in culture and because of that, the next stage starts, and that is evangelical leaders come from all over the world to Labrie to try to figure out how it is that this man, Francis Schaeffer, sitting in this obscure mission in Switzerland with his wife, Edith, writing books, both of them now, that are becoming bestsellers in the evangelical world. What is his shtick? I mean, he's, he's talking to people that never darken a church door. You know, in those days, it was always hair length and how you dressed, but you walked into Labrie and it looked far more like a hippie commune somewhere, you know, in the 1960s than it did anything that looked like a Christian mission. So people like Billy Graham showed up and, and in the early days of Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Dr. Dobson, all these guys started getting interesting in him. And one of those people was a gentleman by the name of Billy Zioli that had made all of Billy Graham's films for him through an operation called Gospel Films in Muskegon, Michigan. So now this is heartland, big time American Christianity. And he comes to Liberty, rents a chalet to study what Francis Schaeffer is doing. Um, you know, like a coach would study a winning soccer team to figure out what it is they've got because they're taking young players and grooming them to do amazing things. And we wanna, we wanna sort of see what, what they're doing. Uh, in terms of just technique and, and outreach and all the rest of it. Billy um, at, befriended me. I was painting. I'm an artist and I was painting. He bought some paintings, which always, you know, put anybody in my good books. And he talked to me. I got Jeannie pregnant, my girlfriend, when we were 17 and 18 and we had gotten married. And now we have two kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old no real way to earn our income. I'm interested in film. I've got a Super 8 camera. I'm shooting movies. I'm editing them on an editing bench. I'm painting. I'm going to head into the arts as far as I'm concerned. So I'm doing the artsy part of the Libri ministry and enjoying it and doing arts festivals. And Billy says, hey, listen, if, if you've wanted to make movies, I will help you produce a film series that will be uh, enable your father to take his message global. Uh, on a much bigger scale. And at that time, the BBC had done a series um, featuring a scientist by the name of Bronofsky called The Ascent of Man. That was a very kind of humanistic science-based look at um, evolution and so on. And there were other series on art and culture the BBC had done. And they were saying, why don't we do a Francis Schaeffer version of art and culture? And that's how a film series and book came about called How Should We Then Live? So here I am at this point, I forget the actual age, but let's say I'm 22 years old. I've got a secretary, a desk, a credit card. Billy's buying me nice suits so I can go meet very wealthy Americans 
um, like Rich DeVos, uh, who, whose um, daughter-in-law became the Secretary of Education under Donald Trump a few years ago, um, and whose, whose son started Blackwater, the mercenary outfit that is in, you know, was accused of murder and all sorts of terrible crimes in Iraq, uh, sort of hard right, the real deal now. Um, so I'm now the nepotistic sidekick of Francis Schaeffer as a young 20-something man producing this movie. And then we launched them with seminars across America. The average attendance was 25,000 people per venue. Uh, we're now flying in a private jet that Jerry Falwell lent us. I mean, this is such weird stuff. Uh, he had the jet because Menachem Begin, the premier of Israel, had given it to him as a personal thank you for his interceding with Ronald Reagan to sell Israel F-15s when America wasn't going to. Um, and, and Jerry Falwell believed they should do that as a fulfillment of prophecy because of the American sort of Christian Zionist movement that's all about Israel, not because they love Jewish people, but because they want uh, Jesus to come back. So now we're hock deep in the very weird and uh, sort of the deep end of the evangelical movement, very different than the world I grew up in. So I'm feeling very alienated in the sense that the more famous we're getting and the more money that's pouring in. Um, it is very different than the Christianity I was raised on, where, you know, my parents didn't even ask for money because it was a faith ministry. Um, like I said, no secretary, uh, working on the side of a bed, no car, uh, traveling third class rail when there was third class in Italy and second class in Switzerland. And now we're in a private jet that, um, you know, flying around the States. So then the, then the final thread in this story is this. We finished that film series and I needed another job. And and Dr. C. Everett Koop, who later became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, comes to Labrie now specifically to talk to me because the way you get to Francis Schaeffer is through his son. In other words, uh, the kind of nepotism is in full force here. Um, dad believes in my talents, but at the same time wants to help this kid who got a girl pregnant. How's he going to earn his living? It's just straight up regular human stuff. The usual evangelical nepotistic thing, father and son. I mean, you know, evangelical world in North Korea run exactly the same way. So what are my credentials? I'm his son. That's it. End of story. And I had some talent as a filmmaker, so I was actually able to deliver. But the opportunity, obviously, was 100% nepotism. So uh, after Billy Zioli had managed to get this multi-million dollar production and these huge seminars, the last episode of How Should We Even Live was on the issue of abortion. And it was the example dad used for what he called the imperial court, kind of going against the Christian tradition of American democracy and basically going in a secular humanistic direction. Secular humanism was the big bad wolf as it was. So Coop comes and he is an ardent evangelical, but he's also very, very pro-life in his views, has a lot of influence of Roman Catholic thinking on him. He's also the surgeon-in-chief at the Philadelphia Children's Hospital. He's a world-famous surgeon who I think was on the cover of Time magazine at about the same time. He's going to become Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General a couple of years later because of his association with my father. And he and dad team up because I basically bully and cajole my dad into making a second series that he didn't want to make. It is my fault. And we do whatever happened to the human race, which becomes the flagship for the entire evangelical wing of the anti-abortion movement in America, starting in the mid-70s all the way through to the present day. So uh, when you look at um, Ralph Reed and these evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, who, who, who buttonholed Donald Trump and explained to him that if he ticked certain boxes in his agenda, things that he didn't believe in or care about, like appoint pro-life judges, all this kind of stuff, talk about school prayer, give more tax breaks to churches, allow them to be involved in politics. Here's the things we want, appoint judges to the federal bench only from the Federalist Society. It all goes back to those movies because Ralph Reed got into politics because of dad and me. Franklin Graham, same thing. Um, it all goes back to that. and. And so I was then involved in something totally different that has nothing to do with the rest of what we did. And that is the formation of the hardcore religious right and basically the takeover of the Republican Party with our ideology. The Republicans jumped in because they saw a free pass to getting voters who weren't voting for them before, because until we came along and the pro-life movement came along, evangelicals were evenly split. People forget this. 
between Democrats and Republicans. There wasn't a, it wasn't a shoe in that you were a conservative Republican. There were plenty of evangelicals who voted Democrat. And guess who one was at that point? Billy Graham, who we had huge arguments with because he refused to quote unquote, take a stand on abortion. He was pro-choice. He never wouldn't get involved with us, which makes what his son Franklin does very ironic. Another was Dr. Criswell, who was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the single, single biggest evangelical denomination and the most conservative bastion of fundamentalism in America. He was pro-choice and refused to appear on our platform at the Dallas seminars that we were launching only four and a half years after we had had 25,000 people in an arena there with him on the platform introducing us. So something that a lot of folks don't know about the American evolution of the far right and evangelicalism is that um, until the anti-abortion movement came along, it was not a given that there was always going to be a moral litmus test where they would all vote the same way until it was politicized. So then, you know, fast forward to the present and you see the, the you know, Cong buildings, Congress being stormed by Donald Trump's minions. Um, none of that happens without the turn of evangelicals into the Republican Party and then eventually the complete takeover of the Republican Party when it comes to the litmus test agenda that evangelicals push, which now are nothing to do with even the anti-abortion movement, but are all about both white nationalism and Christian nationalism. And the two are completely intertwined now. So the, the, the Republican Party in the States is a Christian nationalist party. Uh, basically, the, the, the philosophy of it is that of Amy Coney Barrett, who's now on the Supreme Court, who's technically a Roman Catholic, but came through this whole evangelical system, the Federalist Society that my father helped start, uh, and all these other groups. And now they you know, have a six-person majority on the Supreme Court. Um, they're going to take back Congress, probably the Senate. And it's a toss-up to who the next president is and whether Biden gets a second term or a Democrat. So everything is in play again. One last thing, and then I'll finish this rambling answer, and that is that if you would ask me 15 years ago if we would be where we are right now in the States, I'd say no. I wrote my memoir, Crazy for God. I'm glad people are still reading it and people study it and I get feedback, but that's all past history. Hillary Clinton's going to elected, be elected. We're moving forward. I never would have envisioned that the kind of, um, I'd say, almost handmaid's tale dream that we were pushing of misogyny in the 70s would actually become not only a reality, but that would ne then go into exactly the kind of white nationalism, militia movement, white terrorist organizations, et cetera, that it's morphed into. So the whole thing went so much further down the track and became so much more successful in a horrible way than we could have even envisioned back in the heyday of what we were doing that I'm now pushing 70 years old, absolutely gobsmacked by the fact that uh, we had so much to do with this and, and so sad and angry with myself about that, but also just stunned by the power of, of what we were a little part of unleashing, which is essentially a Christian nationalist movement who, if they get their way, by the way, would rather have America be a theocracy than a democracy. And so, you know, in Trump, they saw him just as a sort of a God-given stepping stone. But the way they're trying to basically curtail voter rights and the way they're intimidating people who, are, who, who run the voting system in our local communities, all this stuff, you know, this did not come out of nowhere. This has been a 50-year uh, process. And it was, it, we had something to do to do with it. So anyway, there you get it. That's who I am. I know it's, it's absolutely fascinating, Frank. And, and I guess there's a few points within there that I, I want to pick up. You, you were just saying that it's been a 50 year process to get to where things have, have landed now in the States. Do you think back at that time, because when you described Labrie, it does sound like a little bit of a utopian community. Um, relatively, there seems to be a, a bit of grace there. You're saying your father's not judging people that are homosexual. Yeah, you got your girlfriend pregnant and then he gave you a job. I mean, that's that's pretty graceful from a modern evangelical perspective. I mean, we were basically living in a welfare state. I'm not kidding. You know, all medical boats paid, a free place to live. And guess what? They would have done it for any any young couple in the work that was having a problem. My parents were wonderful at that point. Listen, I'll, I mean, here, just a funny little anecdote to show you how weird it is that it went the way it went and what an anomaly it was given the rest of their ministry. 
the first paying job I had as a teenager when I was, what was it, 15 or 16, I was down at the Strobe Club in Montreux and our, I, helping with the light show down there. This is when I was making little Super 8 millimeter films and they were projecting them as part of the light show. And then we all got hired to do the light show at the Montreux Jazz Festival for the, uh, for the debut concert at Montreux of the Led Zeppelin. And so there we were on stage with them. And it's not an arena. This is a room. You can, you know, t maybe 20 rows of chairs deep, but small. So it's quite intimate. And Jimmy Page is up over on stairs. And I've, I, at that point, I knew who they were. I think I had their first album. It had just come out. And what's in his back pocket, upside down, but I know what it is because I can see the bottom half of the cover. My dad's book, Escape from Reason, in his jean pocket. Now, the funny thing is, is I'm a pastor's kid trying to be cool. And the last thing I want anybody down there to know is that my dad is this missionary fundamentalist pastor because I'm on my moped riding four and a half hours through a rainstorm to get down there and and like trying to pretend like I'm 21 and not 15 and also, you know, don't want to know about this, but I couldn't help asking him, you know, what, how do you, you know, who, how'd you get that book? And of course, I'm just like, you know, lower than nothing because I'm a guy, just a kid helping pull cables. But he did tell me um, that Eric Clapton had given it to him the week before and told him to read it and said it was a very cool book. And that was my dad's little pamphlet, thin book, maybe 120 pages called Escape from Reason. It was all philosophy, no politics. It was just basically his dad's idea talking about abandoning Christianity in favor of what he called the line of despair and the sense of modern philosophy and nihilism and existentialism and so on. So, you know, if you'd read that, you'd say, hey, the guy's a Christian and he wants you to accept Jesus, but you never for a second would have identified him with a political movement or even a, or the, let alone the right wing. And, um, you know, so that kind of is a little anecdotal thing to say that back in those days, before we got into the whole other thing and were quote unquote discovered, as it were, by big time American Christianity, um, the, the cookie might have crumbled in a different direction. So I guess the, the bit that I wanted to latch on to on that is you would, it seems you were co opted into a movement that, um, you know, your father's ministry or you know what was happening at Labrie was something that could be seen as something that could further the cause of that fundamentalism the evangelicalism and politicizing that movement it, is that a correct reflection yeah absolutely was correct that, yeah so was that strategic yeah dad was co-opted you know you have to understand i mean like, like an academic who labors away as an, in a, an obscure field of anthropology somewhere and suddenly he writes a book and it's a bestseller you know it, it's very heady stuff because there's nothing more obscure than being, you know, a pastor of a small, look, you're preaching sermons to 12 people in your living room. Okay. And <laughs> given an opportunity to talk to more people, you're going to do it. And then basically by the time dad's meeting Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the 700 club, and I'm on the 700 club seven or eight times, dad is too, we're flying around and doing all this stuff. At that point, we are co-belligerents in a cause, which is to turn America away from the direction of humanism and liberalism typified by abortion. And dad is basically holding his nose and working with people he personally dislikes. And I am too. I mean, these are real con artists. Dad was not a con artist. And people sometimes say to me, well, why did you leave the evangelical movement? Of course, there's no one reason. And we can go into that if you want. But one of the reasons was comparing the con artists and that we were working with to the ministry I grew up in, which was not all about money and power over other people. So basically, you know, you meet Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Dr. Dobson, just take those people. These, you know, this is a criminal enterprise. The, these, this is genuine, open greed. You know, this is a Christian TV station, the 700 Club, that winds up with a personal fortune of $1 billion, not a million, a billion dollars in the Robertson family, inclusive of part ownership of a diamond mine in South Africa. Okay, so now this is a long way from my dad on the side of his bed with a tea tray being nice to people and saying, sure, bring your sleeping bag. You can sleep out on my balcony tonight if you don't have a place to crash. That's how I grew up. So the funny thing is one of the reasons I left the evangelical community is when I discovered that the ministry I remembered growing up in, just on the sort of social, cultural, empathy level, was an anomaly that as soon as you got into the big time stuff, you were among you were in a den of thieves, literally speaking, and crazy people. 
and really, really mean people who treated their own people they worked with like shit and everybody and just looked at the world or gay people and so forth and so on and really would construct a handmaid's tale type world if they could get away with it. And on top of everything else, didn't believe in what they were saying. They these guys were were real flakes. So my shock at that and the choice of like, you know, it was like um you know, I sympathize with Prince Charles or something because he wanted to be an architect and someday, and at some point somebody says, no, sorry, you can't do anything you really want to do. You're, you're going to be a king. Well, a king of what? You know, this kind of useless royalty that means nothing anymore. Well, good luck. You know, you, you've just won the big prize. Well, I didn't want it. And I, it was very much the same with me. The, the, the higher we were climbing, you know, I was filling in for dad's, I, I did the keynote address one year at the Southern Baptist Convention to 23,000 pastors because dad was sick and in Mayo Clinic getting chemotherapy. And then people came up afterwards and said this, this crazy evangelical phrase, well, the mantle has passed, you know, God has his hand on you. Uh, you know, you're clearly, you're even a better speaker than your father. This is, this is of the Lord. And I'm sitting there thinking, fuck me, I'm done. If this is my future, you know, I want to be an artist. I've met the Led Zeppelin. You know, I want to be a painter. I'm in love with Jeannie and we're having babies. Uh, my idea of Christian work is this little Christian commune on a hillside. It's like waking up, uh, you know, Rumpel, whatever it is, uh, you know, Rip Van Winkle wakes up a hundred years later. What the hell's going on? So the beginning of my the beginning of my getting out was just because I found that these people we were working with, even by the definition of our standards, were not Christians. If I could just put it like that. So Frank. I had a question for you, actually, which was, yeah. and, and you've already answered it, right? Because I've heard you say, I was flying around in Jerry Falwell's private jet, and then at the same time, you talk about these guys being corrupt. We've got an episode coming up where we're going to talk about nepotism, because everything that you've described about nepotism is actually being lived now in Australian evangelicalism, in Australian Pentecostalism, and that's something that we want to really unpack. But I really want to stop you here and I really want to ask you, what do you mean that they were corrupt? I mean, you've given us hints, right, that there's personal fortunes being amassed. But at what point did you look at this and go, I'm done? This is so corrupt. Well, I didn't get out because I didn't get out because it was corrupt. I got out because I was basically becoming someone that I hated. And you take that out on people around you. So you know, and this is a pretty crude way to put it. And I say this actually, I think in my in in, the, in my new book, which I know we'll get into at some point. And by the way, all joking aside, I'm not dragging it in just to sell a book here. But in the book, I, I use a phrase and I say that I was an asshole by divine right because I was groomed to believe that men are in charge of women, that a woman's place is at a man's side is his help me. And that essentially I'm in charge. This 18 year old idiot, who got his wife pregnant, this girl pregnant, is somehow in charge of her because he's the male, even though she's grown up and he's this, it, he, he isn't. You know, it took me a long to time to catch up to her on all sorts of levels. So just take that. Um, you know, the very fact that you've got a theology in your life that basically has essentially is going to destroy your marriage and you're in love with this girl who's now becoming a woman. And the very thing you believe is poison. Because what it feeds is the toxic masculinity, which is bad enough by itself, let alone people telling you, oh, yeah, well, this is God's will. And you've got to learn to curb her and discipline her and your children, too, because that's the way God has ordained it. So essentially, this is like giving heroin to a drug addict saying, hey, no, no, take more, take more. You're an asshole. Now even be even now turn into a bully on top of it. And this is what this is. This is what men are supposed to be doing. So my rebellion against this right wing that I fell into was aesthetic. It's ugly. It's stupid. They didn't like the movies I liked. They don't like the music I like. You know, my father had taken me to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence and shown me art, albeit he was giving me lectures on humanism, but not aside from that. Um, you know, this was not our family. But then on the personal side, the real spiritual side, you know, uh, if 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 the if the spirituality in your life is making you more of a bully and an asshole than you would be without it, you have a problem. Unless you unless you were into this, and I wasn't in the sense that I really love Jeannie, and <clears throat> we've been married fifty two years, by the way, and um, she and I are, are together, and 
uh, on a daily basis. We take care of our three youngest grandchildren who live across the street, etc. Back in those days, though, here I'm on the road six months a year doing the Lord's work with my dad in this bullshit community. So, you know, I'm missing Jeannie and I'm speaking to these pastors. I don't want to be with them and I don't even like them. And then I'm meeting these religious leaders and every piece of their influence that rubs off on me sends me home angry and disappointed in myself. And at the same time, justifies all my demons and says, no, no, this is the way God wants you to be. You know, your wife is kicking and screaming because you are away six months a year doing the, but you're doing the Lord's work. She's just got to learn to live with it. This, you know, put her in her place. Men, men are supposed to be in charge. So this is, this is poison, especially for an adolescent or a 20 something who is immature and stupid. And then you combine that with this kind of greed element, like, hey, we got to make another series. Otherwise, how do I make my living? So now you look at yourself and you realize right there, you're now becoming like, you You are one of these guys now. You're no longer, I'd, let's say my dad and mom were right and Jesus is your savior and everything was that way. Labrie was so far away from what I was into that whatever this now was, is not that. And then when you get into corruption and criminality, they are. Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, Dr. Dobson, Franklin Graham, Ralph Reed, these people are not knowingly conning people through fundraising techniques. A lot of their perks are put into the ministry, as in the plane, the holiday home for conferences, quote unquote, et cetera, et cetera. These are pyramid schemes. They are, they are run that way on purpose. The family runs everything. Every single one of these organizations, the core is not a board of independent people watching over it. Um, the real scandal, for instance, with Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty was not the fact he was caught with his, with his pants down, so to speak, literally and figuratively with a pool boy that was having sex with his wife while he watched. That was the nice, juicy tabloid stuff. The real scandal is, is the board was allowing him to build a massive shopping complex next to their billion-dollar university with a tunnel that led directly to it that he owned outright where everybody was forced to shop so he could make millions on the side. This is the way it runs. These are who these people are. So there is no daylight between the mob and big time American Christianity, literally. It is, it is run as a tax exempt ripoff um, of, of, of a lot of people who are true believers and who are donation on the donation level. But beyond donation, these guys are investing in huge things. They, they own hotel chains. They have, you know, Pat Robertson has shares in diamond mines in South Africa. You got to understand it's on a level that, that boggles the mind. So, you know, when you look at an nepotistic organization where the only, where, where not only is the guy at the top making money, he shouldn't be making if, if you're following this guy called Jesus. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's just insane. It's absurd. Um, but so is all, you know, but it's real Gilbert and Sullivan stuff too. So because all his cousins and aunts are too, everybody climbs on board. I mean, it's total bullshit top to bottom. Any, any corporation that ran that way, they'd all be in jail. But the way Christianity is set up in America, it's given this tax-exempt status that's really above the law. So that the minute anyone turns around and audits or writes and, hey, you're oppressing Christianity because you're liberal, you're secular humanists. We demand our religious civil liberty. And of course, these days, they're all armed to the teeth. Their followers are. That's who all these militia groups are. So, you know, we got ourselves a problem here in the States. Uh, and, and basically, the evangelical big-time religionists write their own rules. And they have all the way since, you know, beginning of American history, really, because these are the evangelicals or rather they're, they're Puritan forebearers on the, in the Bay State founded the country. And they've always tilted the table in favor of religious freedom. Somehow, you know, it's Orwellian. Every, everyone's equal, except some people are more equal than others. Well, religion in America is given this special dispensation that is weird anyway. But when corrupt people want to use it, it's like handing you know, uh, it's like handing them the keys to the kingdom. For what it's worth, Australian evangelicalism, Australian megachurch, this is all based on the American model. So a lot of what you're talking about, we are seeing on a smaller level here in, in, in our experience as well, aren't we, Brian? Uh, absolutely. We're, we're seeing a politicisation that we haven't seen in a long time. And you can see it's, it's a very similar 
seeking to influence the political system uh, through through churches. And some people would argue it's not intentional. It absolutely is. Uh, I, I mean, that alignment is is definitely intentional, and the stuff that you're describing in the states. So, it's dangerous. Mm. So, my next question for you, then, Frank, is: When did you get the shit? When did you say, "Fuck this, I'm done"? And what did you do? And what were the ramifications of that for you personally? Uh, well, I may forget some part of this question, so pull me back if I don't answer it properly. You know, what where, what was the kind of fuck this moment? Um, well, it didn't come that way. Uh, it came when my dad died in 1984. It was just a question of like, is this the first day of the rest of my life? So the odd thing was it was the very success, quote unquote, that I was having in taking, you know, his mantle not Labrie. Labrie was small potatoes. I wasn't interested in being a Labrie worker or taking over his ministry. You know, I was interested in being the next Schaefer who writes bestsellers. And so I wrote a book called A Time for Anger. And Dr. Dobson picked it up, made it a fundraising fulfillment, uh, had a special print run of a quarter of a million copies that he gave away in one radio show for donations. I mean, this is really on a big level, a quarter of a million books in don't, you know, that's a lot to give away as a fulfillment and they're all gone in one program. You know, that's the path I was on. So I was going to be the next, you know, I would have been the next Franklin Graham um, or somebody like that who can speak publicly and has the Schaefer name and so on and so forth. And, and essentially by that point, I was getting so sick of the community that I was becoming a leader in that um, rather than it feeling good, it really felt awful because I knew I'd, I would, I'd stumbled into something terrible. And again, I say again, the irony is for those who say, oh, well, Frank betrayed evangelicalism, what I was comparing it to was the, the small time, humble, dedicated, lovely parents I had who agree or disagree with their simple evangelical theology, had lots of integrity, compassion, and mercy on people, and were not in it for the money or the personal aggrandizement. So the funny thing is, the beginning of my departure was comparing that Christian experience to now what I had become and feeling guilty about it in a Christian way, as in, how can this be the Lord's work? But then the fact is, when you start pulling at one thread of the tapestry, eventually everything comes away in your hands because you, you then begin to question some of your basic premises, like, hey, was any of this true anyway? And of course, you know, that's a different journey. So it was, it, you know, that was the kind of fuck this moment. And then then the ramifications were simple. Um, you know, nothing happened at first because I wasn't going around advertising it. But because I got out of the work, as it were, the question is, OK, well, what are you going to do? So I took a I cut a showreel from the now 20 some hours of doc documentary drama stuff that I had directed for my dad, cut out all the God bits and uh, got myself an agent in Hollywood because I'd always wanted to be a movie maker. And I thought, OK, I want to get out of this, but I'm going to have to do I haven't trained for anything. I don't know how to do anything except be a Christian leader. I know that sounds crazy. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. I paint and I make movies. Let me see if I can make this into something. And so I got an agent and I started getting these low budget B movies. Uh, and I directed four of them in Hollywood over about a 10 year period. In that process, I was making these kind of shit movies that you've never seen, but they were you know, paying the bills, uh, far less income, of course, Jeannie and I basically, you know, almost went broke several times where, because there was more cash on the book table at any given night at our seminars than I'd made in 10 years at in any 10 year period since. I mean, it, you know, it was an apple, totally different world. So we're scraping by and wondering whether we can pay for health insurance, you know, and one phone call, you know, where I would have repented of, my, my my dropping out and I could have been back in the saddle because Christians love it when you do terrible things, especially, you know, and then come back, quote unquote. But I, Jeannie, Jeannie is the rock that my life is built on and she, she wasn't going to have any of it. She says, I don't care if we wind up living in a room, one room, uh, you know, you're, you're not going back into this. So every time I'd sort of waver, she would, she would put a little steel in my spine and said, look, you know, if I, if I'm willing to, to uh, go broke. And we've got three kids now. Uh, you know, if your wife's not giving you any problem, what's the deal here? Just stick with the program. Something will shake out. So I was making these low budget B movies. Then um, Jeannie came up with this thing and said, look, you know, you hate these shit movies you're making. Why don't you write a script 
based on the stories you're telling me at the kitchen table and telling our children about your early childhood in Labrie, the vacations you were taking in Italy with this crazy fundamentalist family, you know, the life in the commune. And out of that came a, a what I thought was going to be a script, but I, I soon realized I was writing a novel. Actually, Jeannie was the one who said, no, this isn't a script, it's a novel. So um, I got an agent and it became very successful, both critically, critically and commercially, not in the Christian world. They didn't, but, and then the evangelicals who read Portofino said, oh, he's turned against the faith. He's mocking Christianity because it isn't really that, but they took it as that because it is a work of humor and at the expense of fundamentalist missionaries, very much like Francis Anita Schaefer in my early childhood. So at that point, that was like signing my divorce papers, because now I've written a, a book, which is being, ex I've committed two sins. I've written a book, which is successful in quote unquote, the world. Okay. Because it's Macmillan as, as the publisher, not some evangelical press. I'm getting good reviews in the LA times and everywhere else. It's, it becomes Hatchard's number one book in the UK. Uh, you know, I'm in the, and all the rest of this thing. So that's unforgivable because the world likes this book. And why do they like it? Not because Frank Schaefer is a good writer, but because he's turned against us. And part of the nefarious conspiracy against all Christianity means that, of course, he's done this for the money, which is ironic because, like I say, I, I, I had more cash in my pocket at any given time than I earned in a year as a writer. Seriously. I mean, you don't make, you can have a best selling novel, but unless you're, I mean, unless it's the mega sort of, you know, uh, type of thing, you know, you might make a half a year's income for a family of three off that, but that's about it. Um, but after that, it was like, I didn't sign the divorce papers. They did. That was it. I just, I was persona non grata. So one of my sisters didn't speak to me for seven years. Um, I wrote a second novel, Saving Grandma, saying, you know, okay, I've been basically kicked out of the family, the ministry, my old friends, everything's, so I might as well now write a book that's actually centered in the ministry itself. So Saving Grandma takes place in a Christian ministry, and it also did very well. Um, there's a third book in that trilogy, Zermatt. So Portofino, Saving Grandma, Zermatt became this, the Calvin Becker trilogy, uh, translated into nine languages. It's like in a lot of places and essentially tells the story of Calvin Becker, who's really little Frank Schaefer, discovering that there's a bigger world out there than the one his parents are raising him and indoctrinating him with. So I, you know, that's my divorce papers. Then in my mid fifties, I'm pushing 70 now. So whatever it is, 15, 20 years ago, I thought, okay, enough water under the bridge here. Everybody wants to know what the true bits are of these novels and so on. I'm going to write a memoir. And I wrote a book called Crazy for God, which uh, came out, did, you know, uh, again, in, in the States did well in terms of literary nonfiction. And then, um, you know, got me into sort of a lot of nonfiction writing, which I'm still, still doing now, um, which draws on my experiences, but is written from the point of view of a guy who writes novels. So it's also storytelling. And that's kind of what the rest of my career has been. Has that been a, a catharsis for you, Frank? Has it been something that's helped you with that healing? Because, you know, in, in your own books, you re refer to your own post-evangelical PTSD. Yeah. Have the books been the ability for you to, to start working through that? Yeah, they have. And in two ways. One, writing, the process of writing is something I enjoy. You know, I, I, know, I'm a, I, I know writing is what I'm supposed to do because I'm more patient with my writing than anything else. There are other things I would like to do, but I run out of steam, you know. Um, but, you know, I'll, I, I write every day and, and seven days a week. Every single morning I get up at 3 a.m. and I write till about 8. And I've been doing that now for the better part of 30 years. So it, obviously this is something I do. And, and I can work all day when it's the editing, um, you know, 15 hours at a shot if I have to. I don't run out of steam on that. So this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's, And then I put down on the page this journey. But uh, an, another thing has happened, and actually we're doing it tonight with you. And that is that my journey is in no way unique. So thousands of people have come out. And because of my books, I've heard from a lot of them. So a weird thing happened when, when Crazy for God came out, I thought, okay, now the shit's really going to hit the fan. If you think you've alienated people before, now you're telling the real story. This isn't in a novel. This goes through your whole childhood, every, all the material in Portofino and Saving Grandma, but this is the real deal. And now you're bringing it up to what then was the present. 
not the Donald Trump present, but the present 15 years ago. The weird thing was I kept getting letters from people, not only post-evangelicals and Roman Catholics, but from Jews, from agnostics, all sorts of people saying, look, you've just told my story. And then I would hear from them about their journeys out of their version of fundamentalism. Um, and so what it actually did was put me in touch with so many people and make me feel far less alienated. It almost became like a therapy group for me. I never envisioned that. In other words, I heard from so many people and got into email correspondences with them, conversations with them. You know, back in the days of exchanging letters before everything was online and, and you know, a pretty vivid uh, correspondence on paper with people, people coming to meet me, talk to me. Uh, I, I started speaking, you know, college universities in America began to use some of these more biographical books of mine, like Crazy for God, as textbooks in terms of sociology, even anthropology, obviously studies of uh, religion and history. And then I, you know, I'd be on the road talking to some student and, you know, they, they, we'd go off and have a drink after my talk or something. And, you know, we're sitting there for three hours and suddenly I'm surrounded by four or five kids who've grown up in Pentecostal families, assemblies of God, uh, or whatever it might be. And they're telling me their story. And, you know, what I'm doing is listening to them, not talking. And that exchange is very therapeutic to me because it, it just keeps telling me you're not alone. There's a lot of people who take travel this. You happen to have had a famous evangelical father. Otherwise, your, your story is identical to this 19-year-old you're talking to having a beer with in Milwaukee. And he's, you know, you're, he, he's taking encouragement that here's this guy who's a little older who's been around the block, who's come to the same conclusions he's beginning to think about. But you're taking encouragement because you see yourself in him a few years back. And it's like, you're not alone. Uh, there's a huge movement of people who have survived this and come out and are trying to put their lives together. So the writing has 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 made me feel that I'm part of something that has awoken within the spiritual community from which I come that is good and has helped people. Uh, so in that sense, they've been very therapeutic as well. So Frank, this is an awesome chat and we're getting a lot out of this, really enjoying it. Um, but I know this is going to really turn into a two-parter episode. So we're going to put a pin in this now. We're going to end this episode and we're going to invite people to join us on our second episode, also dropped today for part two of our interview with Frank Schaefer.